From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Gerrymandering is the practice of creating political districts to benefit the political party that is drawing the lines. It is, in a sense, the political art of choosing one's voters. While gerrymandering for racial purposes has been deemed unconstitutional, doing it for political or partisan reasons has not. After a series of U.S. Supreme Court decisions dating back to the 1940s, all of which effectively punted the decision further down the road, in 2019, the High Court's Rucho v. Common Cause decision ruled that while partisan gerrymandering may be, quote, incompatible with democratic principles, the federal courts cannot review such allegations as they present what are called non-judiciable political questions that are outside the scope of what the court should consider. To get some history on gerrymandering in the U.S., we're joined today by the author of the new book, One Person, One Vote, A Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. Dr. Nicholas Seabrook is professor and interim chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. I spoke with him yesterday. Let's hear that now. Dr. Seabrook, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We invite you to weigh in on today's conversation using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Use the hashtag GCL. So for starters, we've all heard the term gerrymandering, and we all feel like we know how to pronounce it. But I learned through your book that the guy who it's named after, Elbridge Jerry, actually pronounced his name Elbridge Gary with a hard G. Is that something that you learned in putting this book together or is that something somebody like you has always known? It's actually something that I learned when I was doing the research for the writing of this book. And I think most people, as you say, kind of have a a basic understanding of what uh, gerrymandering, uh, as we call it today, is. Although when I was looking into the historical origins of it, I found that the word was pronounced in a way commensurate with the individual who unfairly, as it turns out, uh, has had this become kind of his his lasting legacy in American history. Uh, but it was pronounced gerrymandering in the popular discourse for uh, around about the first 50 years or so uh, after its purported origins during the tenure of governor of Elbridge Gary. Uh, and most people are familiar. If you if you Google the word gerrymandering, one of the first things that will come up is the famous cartoon that was produced by uh, the Boston Gazette, the newspaper in New England, to, to kind of poke fun uh, at this bizarrely shaped district that had been produced during Elbridge Gary's tenure as governor. But what I discovered when I, I researched this Uh, origin story was that Gary himself was not really responsible for creating the quote-unquote original gerrymander. It had been his co-partisans in the state legislature who had uh, really tried to, to put their thumbs on the scale of democracy by drawing this district, which was designed to promote the interests of the Democratic Republicans at the expense of the Federalists in the state. And uh, it's somewhat unfortunate, given that Elbridge Gerry was this really important figure of the the founding era, uh, who had been actively involved in supporting the Revolutionary War, who had been a delegate at the Constitutional Convention, who went on to serve as vice president of the United States uh, under James Madison. And he's someone, uh, if he had been a younger man, may well have been uh, elected as president in his own right. 
But today, pretty much the only thing we remember him for is the association with this kind of unseemly practice of manipulating election districts. Hmm. So uh, if there's one thing that I hope the book does, it's to kind of vindicate Elbridge Gerry's historical legacy and point out that this was not something that, that he was responsible for. It's really something that's been with us throughout U.S. history, even going back to before the Constitution itself. Hmm. So we, uh, we, we have it historically wrong about him, and we mispronounce his name all these years later. Um, yeah. <laughs> so define gerrymandering to a person as if they have no idea what it is, as, as broadly and as concisely as possible. So at its most basic level, gerrymandering involves the manipulation of lines on a map in order to achieve some kind of political outcome. And generally, we think of this in the context of the drawing of districts that will be used in elections. So every 10 years, we have a census that takes place in the United States. And in the wake of each census, states and localities are required to redraw all of the districts that get used to elect members of Congress, members of the state legislature, members of city councils, school boards, and all of these various other representative bodies in order to ensure that the populations are equal, that everyone's vote counts the same for the purposes of choosing our representatives in government. That is the, the principle of one person, one vote, um, after which the book is named. But when it comes to this process, what's known as redistricting, there are a lot of different choices that those who are responsible for drawing those districts can make. There are a lot of different arrangements, different configurations of district lines that could plausibly be put in place. And gerrymandering is the manipulation of those district lines in order to try and achieve a political goal, generally to ensure that incumbent members of the legislature are reelected, they get to keep their seats and their jobs, or to ensure that the party that is presently in control, uh, the party that is drawing the districts, gets to keep their majority. And it doesn't necessarily require districts. In the book, I document other instances of gerrymandering. For instance, back in the 19th century, we saw gerrymandering of the boundaries of the U.S. territories and subsequently of the states themselves. The map of the Western United States looks like it does largely because those territories were subdivided for political purposes uh, in the lead up to and in the aftermath of the Civil War. Anytime politicians are drawing lines on a map and they are manipulating those boundaries for their own political ends, that is uh, an example of gerrymandering. The title of your book uh, starts with one person, one vote. How far back does that principle go here in the United States? So the reapportionment revolution, as I term it in the book, really began in the 1960s. And it was a response to a problem that had kind of been percolating in the United States since the early 20th century. So 
Going back into earlier periods in U.S. history, districts had quite often been drawn based on geography with no particular regard for how many people lived in those districts. Many states, when it came to drawing their state Senate districts, had followed a blueprint kind of similar to what had been done with the U.S. Senate, with instead of states getting equal representation, it was the individual counties in the state that got equal representation. Each county was awarded one senator to represent them. But what we saw, particularly during the first half of the 20th century, is that you saw a pretty significant migration from rural areas to urban areas. And consequently, those districts became extremely imbalanced in terms of their populations. You might have a rural county with 10,000 people living in it that had the same representation in the state Senate as an urban county that had several million people living in it. And this created some fairly significant imbalances in terms of political power. Rural voters across the United States had a dramatically outsized influence on the workings of government compared to their counterparts in the cities. And the Supreme Court during the 1960s made a series of decisions in which they ruled this practice unconstitutional and said that at all levels of government, districts must be drawn so that their populations are equal, so that everyone's voice counts the same when it comes to selecting representatives in government. And that constitutional principle was termed one person, one vote. But one of the things that I document in the book is that in kind of fixing this one major problem in American democracy, the court opened the door to what I term the modern gerrymander, that one person, one vote created a situation where every state now had to redraw its districts every 10 years after the census in order to keep the populations equal. And politicians pretty quickly figured out that they could manipulate those districts to try and influence the results of subsequent elections. And so this modern era of gerrymandering, which began in the 1960s, has become even more pronounced in recent decades as the tools and the information available to those politicians has become much more sophisticated. The sheer volume of data on where people live, who they tend to vote for, what their preferences and tendencies and values are compared uh, and combined with kind of sophisticated software and models and simulations to predict how individual districts will perform in subsequent elections uh, has kind of created this perfect storm of gerrymandering where uh, every 10 years, we see politicians effectively dictating the outcomes of subsequent elections solely based on how those lines are drawn. And just to be clear, this is not a, a Republican or Democrat thing. This is a all parties do this whenever they have the chance to do this thing is what I learned from your book, right? Yeah, and this is something that I think is 
unfortunate about the way that gerrymandering is approached today in that it has become one other issue that has kind of developed a partisan element to it because in the most recent redistricting cycles, particularly 10 years ago, where you had the 2010 wave election where Republicans turned out to vote in extremely high numbers. Republican candidates performed extremely well, not just at the national level, but also uh, at the state level as well. And Republicans were able to parlay those successes into a number of extremely effective gerrymanders at the state level. And that has kind of turned this into an issue where a lot of the momentum for fixing gerrymandering is coming from Democrats, because uh, at least recently, they are the ones who have been victimized by the process. But you don't have to go back all that far in US history, particularly the 1970s and the 1980s, when things were uh, effectively the other way around. It was Democrats who controlled the majority of state governments. It was Democrats who were doing the most effective gerrymandering in places like California and Texas, where they held the majority. Uh, and it was Republicans back then who were calling for the courts to, to do something about it, to come in and put a stop to it. But the point that I wanted to, to make in the book is that this is not a Democratic problem or a Republican problem. This is fundamentally and quintessentially an American problem. And it's one that we should all care about because whether you're on the left or the right, having elections where who is in government is responsive to the preferences of the public, where we have the opportunity to remove politicians from power if we feel that they are not adequately representing our interests. That is a fundamental democratic mechanism, and it's a mechanism that has been increasingly undermined by the pernicious effects of gerrymandering on our elections. I want to take a moment to reintroduce our guest. Dr. Nick Seabrook is professor and interim chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at University of North Florida and author of the new book, One Person, One Vote, The Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. If you'd like to engage with us about this conversation or any of our shows, we invite you to do so using WGCU social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Can you explain, um, you know, kind of as concisely as possible, because we only have so much time, how the Supreme Court has still to this day refused to really significantly weigh in on partisan gerrymandering, not necessarily racial gerrymandering, but partisan gerrymandering and um, courts ought not to enter this political thicket, I think is the principle that lays at the root of it. Yeah, so going all the way back and that particular quote is from a case that was decided in 1946. Uh, it was a quote from Justice Felix Frankfurter, who is one of the figures that I focus on uh, quite a bit in the book. But as long as the courts have been dealing with cases in this area, there's been a fundamental tension between the notion of judicial restraint, the idea that judges should not insert themselves too much into the political process and interfere with the things that the elected branches of government are doing versus kind of fundamental constitutional principles like equal protection and 
protecting individuals' right to vote on an equal footing with other citizens. And throughout a whole series of Supreme Court cases going back to the 1980s, this tension has fundamentally divided the justices in a way that has led to them not definitively, at least until uh, the decision of the Roberts Court back in 2018, not definitively taking one side or the other, not stepping in and saying gerrymandering is unconstitutional. Here is a clear and concise test for when it goes too far or saying that, as Frankfurter did, this is something that judges, courts should leave well enough alone and allow the, the people's representatives to resolve. Ultimately, it was that judicial restraint perspective that did win out uh, in the Rucho decision back in, uh, in 2018. But there was a long period of time where there was an opportunity for the Supreme Court to step in and put a stop to gerrymandering. Uh, and they, they really failed to effectively do so over, over many decades. You know, I pulled a quote from that Rucho decision that you just referred to, and it, it's really disheartening. This is from the majority opinion. Excessive partisanship in districting leads to results that reasonably seem unjust, but the fact that such gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles does not mean that the solution lies with the federal judiciary. We conclude that partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of the federal court. So they're saying they're not going to weigh in. But as we've already learned, whoever has the power doesn't want to change things. And then as soon as they get out of power, they want to change things. So it seems like we're in a stalemate. Is that a fair way to put it? I think so. And there's a fundamental tension there between the language there and the principle of one person, one vote. If it can be a violation of equal protection, for the numbers, the populations between districts to be out of balance and that to affect representation. How is it not a similar violation where the districts are drawn to have equal numbers, but to ensure that either Democrats or Republicans in a state overall have dramatically outsized voting power compared to the other side? The effect of that decision has been to shift the legal debate about gerrymandering to the state level. And so while the doors of the federal courts are kind of firmly and definitively and perhaps permanently slammed shut, we have seen at the state level quite a bit of progress at convincing state courts to strike down partisan gerrymanders. We saw that here in Florida last decade where the people of the state put the fair districts amendments in the state constitution back in 2010. The legislature violated those amendments and created a partisan gerrymander and the Florida Supreme Court struck it down. And eventually both Florida's U.S. House districts and its state Senate districts were redrawn. We've seen in other states state-level lawsuits being effective at fighting back against gerrymandering as well, most notably in New York earlier this year, where the state courts struck down a uh, pretty egregious democratic gerrymander of that state's U.S. House districts. But there are downsides here in that 
these battles need to be fought on a state-by-state basis and lawsuits are expensive they're time consuming and there's no guarantee of success we've seen courts in other states like kansas and here in florida not step in within the last year or so and put a stop to gerrymandering which is why in my conclusion to the book I say that this is something that change ultimately has to come from the people, whether that's through ballot initiatives, whether that's through lobbying Congress to pass legislation to ban gerrymandering in federal elections, or building a a popular movement that makes reform of redistricting. And most importantly, removing this power from the hands of self-interested politicians and instead creating some kind of independent commission to redraw districts based on neutral principles. But this change has to come from the people because there are strong incentives that really mean that, that we cannot rely on politicians to voluntarily relinquish this authority. You know, in the 2010 maps that you just talked about in Florida that were challenged in through the courts, the problem with that is there were two then elections that happened with those maps before that was resolved. So if we can't do it proactively, then they can get away with it for an election or two or maybe three in some cases. Right. And there were other states where you had what ultimately ended up being maps that were ruled unconstitutional that were in effect for even longer. In Pennsylvania, they had a U.S. House map that was used up until 2018 before the court stepped in and struck it down. And in North Carolina, it was not until 2020 that their map was fixed by the state courts. And we're now fighting that battle here in Florida. Governor DeSantis, of course, stepped in and vetoed the redistricting maps for the House of Representatives that the GOP-controlled legislature had enacted. He was able to persuade them to adopt his own heavily gerrymandered map. And so far, at least, the state courts have allowed that map to be used for the 2022 elections, which affects not only us here in Florida and here in Jacksonville, We saw the elimination of a district that had previously elected an African-American Democrat. A similar thing happened down in Orlando. But this has very real consequences for control of the House of Representatives as well, that decisions like here in Florida that allowed Republican gerrymanders to go unchallenged and uh, remain in effect could end up deciding and determining who controls the House of Representatives in the fall. It's going to be many years that we're going to be fighting against these unconstitutional maps here in Florida, uh, and again, with no guarantee of success. From your perspective, how much is our current extremely high level of political polarization in this country the result of decades and even centuries of gerrymandering? So I would say that gerrymandering and polarization are two trends that have kind of moved in concert with one another, have reinforced one another. I think gerrymandering both makes polarization worse in certain respects, and that polarization also makes gerrymandering worse. But I also don't think that either is the kind of root cause of the other. But while that is the case, the 
existence of both at the same time is a pretty potent recipe for conflict and dysfunction in our political system. When you have Democrats and Republicans who are really far apart from one another ideologically. And not only that, kind of view their opponents as not just people they disagree with, but people who are evil, who are actively working to destroy the Republic or, or the American way of life. There's no common ground when that is the way that large numbers of Americans are thinking about politics. And when that is the case, preventing the other side from achieving power is almost as important as enacting your own agenda, which is why I think both Democrats and Republicans have been even more willing to push the envelope when it comes to gerrymandering, whether it's here in Florida with Republicans or whether it's Democrats in places like New York and Illinois, that the existential threat that both sides will argue their opponents pose mean that this kind of democratic backsliding and, and these types of shenanigans are seen as justified and excused. And in that kind of climate, it becomes even harder to reform the system because you can point to a state like California where they have an independent citizens redistricting commission. Uh, it was a commission that was opposed by Democrats like Nancy Pelosi at the time because she believed accurately as it turned out that having fair maps in California would prevent Democrats from being able to fight back against Republican gerrymandering. If Democrats had had the opportunity to gerrymander California in the way that Republicans have done uh, in places like Florida and Texas, we might be looking at a very different house map for the fall. So polarization is a, is a major obstacle when it comes to reforming gerrymandering, and it's one that makes the effects of gerrymandering even more severe when you have that kind of political climate in place. Um, last question. Is this an American political problem? Is this a, a Western democracy political problem? Or is this, you know, who's, who does this well? I mean, where else in the world are people doing, uh, you know, voting districts in a way that isn't gerrymandered like what we experience? It's a problem that has tended to manifest itself in all representative democracies that make use of districts. And most systems kind of start out similar to the United States, where the political branches of government have responsibility for drawing districts. Where the U.S. is unique is that while pretty much every other nation that has experienced the problem of gerrymandering has figured out a way to fix it, we, for whatever reason, have not. And Gerrymandering arguably originated in the United Kingdom and the British Commonwealth, and it was the British who kind of came up with the original fix back in the late 19th century, uh, originally in New Zealand, but this system then spread throughout nations that were part of the British Commonwealth. They figured that if you create an independent commission, they called it a boundaries commission, that is insulated from political influence, and you give that independent commission the authority to redraw districts, that removes 
almost all of the kind of negative and detrimental impact of gerrymandering. And over the last hundred years, pretty much every nation that uses districts for its elections has done something similar, has made some kind of independent commission or independent agency for election administration that takes this power away from the politicians who themselves are going to be running in those districts. And it turns out that when you get rid of those perverse incentives, when the people who are drawing the districts have no direct stake in what happens, that fixes a pretty sizable chunk of the problem. You're never going to have districts or maps that are 100% fair. No electoral system that makes use of districts has ever kind of met that ideal, but it's a pretty easy fix and one that we have, with some limited exceptions, states like California, Colorado, Michigan uh, have really good systems, but it's one that we in the United States have not yet figured out. And I hope we do in the coming years because 10 years from now, we're going to be doing this all over again and having the same conversations and facing the same problems. We have a window to pass legislation, to pass initiatives to try and fix this problem. And I hope that we are able to do so. All right. Well, that is unfortunately all the time we have. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Nick Seabrook, is professor and interim chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at University of North Florida and author of the new book, One Person, One Vote, The Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. Dr. Seabrook, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org GCL, or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1 and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island, a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.